Welcome to Meekum Presents On The Move, the show geared toward keeping you up to speed with the latest auto news, event coverage, and expert industry insight. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Avery and John Craman. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of On The Move. I'm Matt Avery, executive producer of The Transmission, and joining me from a safe and quarantined location is John Craman, lead TV commentator for Mecham Auctions. Hey, Matt, greetings from my uh, home office, which is absolutely jam-packed with automobile memorabilia, so... Not a bad place to be talking to you from. Now, John, it is April and it's already getting warm outside. It is time to almost start thinking about summer cruising. But, you know, I think it's important for us to kind of get a baseline of what it, where do we stand with the collector car market so far into 2020? And really, what's ahead for the rest of the year? What are your thoughts on that? Well, Matt, that's a good question because the current times that we're in, that's a very popular topic on various chat lines and social media. And my prediction for the remainder of 2020 is going to be based on the success that we've seen so far. We're relatively early into the year, but with Mecham Kissimmee under our belts, world's largest collector car auction, that was in January. And then the follow-up success to that with our Glendale auction uh, that was held um, just about a month or so ago, proves one thing, and that is interest in collector cars of all genres, makes, models, types, price ranges, continues to be very high. And I'm going to predict that going into the future, for the remainder of 2020, once we start getting things open back up, honestly, it's going to be business as usual. Circling back to Kissimmee, John, you know, a lot of people probably familiar with the news of the Bullet Mustang uh, selling for a record $3.74 million. But looking at the rest of the top 10 from that auction, anything stand out to you in terms of trends or what we'll be seeing more of? That's a, again, that's a really good question, Matt, because what we're looking at in the top 10 is almost $15 million worth of cars made up the top 10 at Kissimmee. And there's no real theme. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Obviously, the Bullet Mustang got all the attention. It was number one by far with the Bullet, haha. But you take late model exotics, you take pre-war classics, including in Duesenberg, uh, a couple more high-profile celebrity cars, the 67 Eleanor from the movie Gone in 60 Seconds, um, the 66 Superformance Ford GT40 that was one of the two hero cars uh, driven by Christian Bale as Ken Miles in Ford versus Ferrari. A great movie, uh, a vintage Ferrari 72 Daytona, and my personal favorite, to answer your question directly now, my personal favorite was a 68 Challenger 2 Streamliner, the land speed record car uh, driven by Danny Thompson to the land speed world record, uh, selling uh, for $561,000. So what a wide range shows, I think, the depth and the breadth and the variety of what Kissimmee historically has attracted once again another record sale well over 100 million dollars generated just at that single auction john one of the cars that you and i both were drawn towards was that 66 superformance gt40 that was used in the ford vs ferrari movie now do you think moving forward are we going to be seeing a lot more uh cars from that film coming to auction Yeah, and I'll tell you why, Matt. The fact that it hammered for $484,000 is significant because we have seen other similar non-movie star uh, Superformance GT40 replicas bring in the $150,000 range, give or take a little bit, depending on 
uh, the condition and the quality and some of the equipment upgrades that have been done to them over the years. So, yeah, it definitely brought a premium price. And I think that as time goes on, the movie Ford versus Ferrari is going to resonate for a long time. It's a time, it was based obviously back in the mid sixties. Um, but that really tells the story. Yeah. In a Hollywood sort of way, but with a lot of historic, uh, accuracy as well. So I think as we move forward and go on with time, uh, I think that anything associated with that movie is going to, is going to be considered collectible. And speaking of collectible, it seems like 2020 is really shaping up to be the year of the Mustang. Three of the top 10 at Kissimmee were first gen Mustangs. And here we are approaching Indy and we have another major milestone Mustang coming to auction, the 350R prototype. So uh, it seems like this is a great time if you're a Ford enthusiast. Well, and that ties in with your question about uh, the, the impact of Ford versus Ferrari. The same thing applies to the two highest-selling Mustangs ever to sell uh, at auction. Both were sold by Mecham Auctions, the 67 uh, Mustang uh, Shelby GT500 Super Snake with the 427 Le Mans engine used for uh, high-speed tire testing for Goodyear. Back in the day, it was a pet project of Carroll Shelby. That car bringing $2.2 million a year or two ago. And then, of course, the Bullet Mustang setting a high mark at three over $3.7 million at Kissimmee this year. Now with the third car, what's referred to as the flying Mustang, the GT350R, driven by Ken Miles, a dominant race car back in the day, uh, I, I'm sure that it's the success of the sale of the previous Mustangs that I talked about is what's drawn that car and the associated collection from the uh, John Otzbach group to the auction. Uh, people want to get on board with an auction venue that has had proven success at high-dollar Mustangs. Now, moving away from the Kissimmee auction, we also had a motorcycle auction. Any observations or, or uh, trends that you notice with the bikes that were crossing the block? Well, important also to note, uh, uh, Matt, because the motorcycle auction, the annual auction held in January by Meekham, uh, at the South Point Hotel and Casino is also the world's largest collector motorcycle auction. And once again, this year, another incredibly stellar event, great coverage on NBCSN as well. And people literally come from around the world. That's a world event. And it indicates that not only is the collector car market strong, alive and vibrant, but the vintage motorcycle market is just as strong. And in a lot of ways, it has its own dynamic in a lot of ways, uh, continuing to gain in popularity and transitioning over to our car customers. Collecting motorcycles are a lot of fun and a great companion to cars. And from there, Meekum headed off to Arizona. And any takeaways that we can glean from the auction in Glendale? Well, again, the, the, the theme of our conversation has been about where we at so far in the year. What are the indicators that might tell us what do we think this market's going to be like? What do we know that it is right now? And what do we think it's going to be in the future? And the success of the first three auctions, the two car auctions and the motorcycle auction, all indicate that uh, 2020 is going to be a very strong year for collectible motorcycles uh, and for cars as well, trucks and everything else that's associated with that. So um, what it tells me, and of course, we're all just so relieved and proud uh, to be a part of it, that this market for collector vehicles, collector items continues to gain, it continues to grow. And what I like about the way that Meekum has been 
uh, kind of working their magic is they seem to be a step or two always ahead of the game, always kind of going outside the box. Uh, at Kissimmee, we saw the sale of almost uh, $800,000 of collectible guitars, of all things. And I think that trend is also going to continue. So, um, you know, I'm, I am uh, really looking forward to the remainder of 2020. Got a lot of auctions coming up. Got a lot of great cars coming up. And uh, I'm going to, once again, I'm going to predict that it's going to be a very, very strong year for both buyers and sellers. Speaking of things to come in June, the Eddie Vinoy collection will be coming to auction. John, I know you were down there uh, doing a big TV special that just aired. What all is included in that collection and what can people expect to see? Yeah, we did a great half hour special called Meekum Presents, the Eddie Vinoy collection. Uh, it was myself, Dan Meekum, who uh, runs the Meekum Road Art Division. And uh, uh, a couple of other very special uh, guys giving a lot of insight to the collection. Let me just break it down briefly for you. A hundred cars, not a lot there, but all high quality, but over 5,000 pieces of high quality restored or mint original memorabilia. This is a big auction. It's going to be five days. There's, um, it goes June 3rd through June 7th. It will be streamed gavel to gavel at Meekum.com. So if you want to just spectate, you're certainly welcome to uh, at Beacom.com. Just click on the Watch Now button. And uh, if you want to bid on any of the items, uh, once again, Beacom.com can provide you with all the information on how to get squared away as a bidder for what's going to be one of the most fun events of the entire year. Now, of those 100 cars, any jump out to you that you really liked? You know, there were two that just that stopped me in my tracks uh, of, of a great group of cars. He's got three Dodge Demons, all with zero miles. Uh, those aren't my favorites, although they're up there. Uh, one of each, or three different colors. Uh, of course, those cars were only made in 2018 for the U.S. market, only 3,000 built, and Eddie ended up with three of them. But uh, Buick GSX 1970, only two colors, um, uh, yellow and white. Eddie's got one of each. They're the highest quality restorations I've ever seen. And to see those two cars sitting there side by side, um, out of a great group of cars, 100 fantastic cars, luxury cars, muscle cars, trucks, resto mods, a wide variety of entries as part of his collection. But I got to say, those Buick GSXs just knocked me out, man. Meekum Auctions is proud to bring you On the Move with Matt Avery and John Craman. For more on the world of collector cars, head over to Meekum.com. Now let's get back to the show. Right after the Glendale auction, John, I know you rushed off to Vegas to take part in a special look at the John Otzbach collection. What all was part of that? Well, there were two big parts to that uh, where I did get a chance to take a look at what I guess I consider to be uh, even dozen of the highest quality collector cars in one collection that I've ever seen. Of those 12 cars, 10 are Shelby's, 9 of them Mustangs, one two eighty nine Cop Cobra, and a couple of really cool Lamborghinis. But, you know, just as significant, Matt, is the fact that I had a chance to meet and hang out with a guy that I knew about, had heard of, out of the Kansas City area, but never had a chance to meet. And uh, the fact that I did get a chance to uh, hang with Vern Estes, he was also part of the show, which is going to be part of our series that we do, Make Him Presents. It'll be the John Osbach Collection. It will be airing on NBCSN. It's in production right now, so keep an eye out for listings on that. But I came away really impressed with Vern as part of a new generation of automobile enthusiasts that has taken 
an extreme interest in an era that he wasn't even dreamt of yet from the 1960s. And he's made that his life's work. And he's going to be there as the lead representative, uh, riding herd and taking care of this group of cars uh, up until and including at the auction itself. So really looking forward to hearing uh, some of the dialogue uh, that Vern will be able to provide for us in regard to the collection. And also, just as importantly, Pierre Brock, uh, a legend and an A-lister by any standard, uh, Shelby's first employee, in fact, was also there in Las Vegas, and we had a chance to meet him, and he also will be part of the show. So really got a lot of heavy hitters in the Shelby world, uh, which this collection of cars, uh, Matt, they're totally deserving. Now, John, how, had you met uh, Peter Brock before that? I was actually, yeah, I was actually lucky enough to meet uh, Pete a couple of years ago at a big car show uh, in Southern California called the Dr. George Car Show, where he was exhibiting his line of aero design and car hauling trailers. Uh, and I did get a chance to uh, chat with him and his wife for half hour or so and relived the glory days of his it's incredible because he's the guy that was actually uh, sketched out the original design of the split window uh, Corvette that debuted in 63. This is back in the 50s. He was gone by GM at that time and, of course, has gone on to be so significant in the automotive world, not only back in the 50s, but even continuing on to this day. He's a bundle of energy for a guy his age. Now, on the line joining us, we do have Vern Estes. Vern is representing, as John mentioned, the uh, John Otzbach collection. Vern, thanks for stopping by. Hey, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Now, Vern, had you met Peter Brock before, or was the recording for the TV special your first interaction? You know, I had met Pete uh, briefly before uh, at a local car show that actually is no longer uh, in existence here in Kansas City called the Art of the Car Concours, and Pete was kind of the uh, the guest of honor uh, a few years ago. So it was great to meet him, but I mean, it was uh, it was an amazing experience going down to Las Vegas and getting to spend some time with Pete, and as well as uh, as meeting John. Uh, John really kind of helped coach me on on the whole TV deal you know, and how to behave in front of the camera, frankly, I'd, I'd never done something like that before. So John was a huge help in that regard. And it was, it was great to meet somebody that I've seen on television uh, for so long at the Meekum auctions. But, you know, in regards to Pete, it was, it was really cool in that uh, the crew that was, was setting up the cameras and everything and the shots, they weren't quite ready uh, when Pete got there. Uh, you know, much to my gain, I got to just kind of walk around uh, the warehouse we were at that was obviously filled with some incredible automobiles and, just kind of stroll around the warehouse and talk with Pete. It was, it was neat to get sort of um, sort of a good concentration of time and just very informal conversation with Pete and ask him, you know, about some of his projects with Shelby and some of even being a being a memorabilia and, and literature hound. You know, ask him about some of the the more unusual, uh, you know, items that are both in the Oxbox collection and not in the collection, just related to Pete Brock's work there. It was just fun to, to kind of get to spend some some kind of quote-unquote off-the-record time with Pete. It was really cool. Now, Vern, you are a diehard Shelby enthusiast, very knowledgeable. Where did that passion come from? You know, I've, I've just always been a bit of an old man in a, in a young man's body, frankly. I mean, I've always been. I've always kind of called myself a bit of a freaking nature, you know, for a younger guy. But I've, my interest has just always lied in, in older cars and specifically in the cars of Shelby American. Uh, you know, it started at a really young age and people sometimes have a difficult time believing it. But I mean, I was, I was pretty much centered on Shelby related objects by like the age of 12 years old. And so I was working an hourly job, uh, actually helping to restore Shelby's, 
doing sort of the grunt work of it here locally for $10 an hour and then was literally spending uh, every dime of that money on eBay buying original Shelby American related uh, materials on eBay and, and in all other sorts of sources. And, you know, I just started collecting that stuff because I couldn't afford the cars, obviously, at the ripe age 12 and, and, and really wanted to be involved. And that, you know, over time, you know, I started sort of treating it as a business when I was in high school and in college and just became known as somebody who was fairly good at finding some of the more interesting, historic, rare Shelby American related objects. And over time, frankly, that just sort of blossomed into the car. So, you know, my what I focus in now and how I make my living is I, I buy and sell um, Shelby Mustangs, Cobras, high-performance Fords, all the rare varieties of high-performance Fords uh, through my business, Vernon Estes Classics. And I also still do the memorabilia quite a bit. Um, you know, that's just, just always been a passion of mine. So on my website, there's always a listing of tons of memorabilia, lots of cars and stuff like that. But my, my whole kind of involvement in the car hobby has just always been Shelby centric. I mean, I just think that the Shelby American story is one of the greatest American sports stories, you know, let alone one of the greatest, you know, racing stories of all time. Now, Vern, give us a high level view. What all is included in John Ott's box collection? Oh boy! There's the, the nice thing about John's collection is that there's there's really something for everybody, and there's there's all price ranges, there's all levels of rarity, there's everything from showroom brochures, commonly available items through showrooms. I mean, there's things that if you were to walk into any Ford dealer in the '60s, even if they didn't have a Shelby on the showroom floor, occasionally they would have brochures or postcards or something else. And even while, while a lot of that stuff can be a little bit difficult to find it's more common than a lot of the stuff being that Shelby was a limited manufacturer. Now there are items that could be, you know, 20, 30, $40, you know, lower cost original items. And then, you know, in John's collection, there are, there's basically everything else. I mean, there are some of the highest end, most notable, uh, collectible Shelby American related items that exist. There's, you know, a champagne bottle from the 1968 winning Gulf GT 40. There's, you know, there's a there's a Cobra powered by Ford uh, flag that is one of two in the world, the only one in the world in its size. There's all sorts of dealer-specific items that are extremely rare, all sorts of race team-specific items, including original clothing, which is always a favorite of the higher-end collectors out there. And there's basically every variety of factory poster ever produced, from the posters that were available as accessories in the catalog that you could mail order at the time to stuff again that was only distributed to dealers or only distributed through the race team and even some things that just really weren't available to the public in any capacity and only really printed for company you know purposes and and it's everything again from their showroom brochures but there's also what i call little trinkets so promotional lighters cufflinks keychains bracelets charms all these things that one of the reasons why i love collecting shelby memorabilia so much and really any memorabilia uh, from the 60s is that it was back in an era when some really interesting high quality promotional items are made you know it's not manufacturers nowadays just send out promotional emails or give you sort of a cheap mass produced brochure in a lot of cases and it's rare to find anything that it's really substantial whereas back in the day i mean almost every year there was like a different kind of lighter that you could buy out of the catalog you know there was all sorts of different promotional items that were produced by the factory in order to promote the cars but it just doesn't seem to really be that way anymore um, so, so in the Oddspot collection, there's really a little bit of everything, all levels of rarity, all price levels, everything from pieces that are the only one of their kind in the world, all the way to the more common items. So really anybody who wants to start collecting Shelby memorabilia could participate in the auction while also 
people who already are some of the world's greatest Shelby American memorabilia collectors and racing memorabilia collectors in the world will also be able to find no shortage of pieces that they're going to be interested in. Now, moving to vehicles, John is bringing 10 to auction. What are some of the highlights of those? Well, I mean, that's the thing about the, the offering of the cars. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to really even single out a, a, a couple highlights because almost every car could be a highlight unto itself. It's a, it's a pretty wide variety of different kinds of cars. I mean, the, the most obvious, uh, you know, first car that's going to be there is 5R002, which is the first competition uh, GT350 ever constructed. The iconic flying Mustang, the Ken Miles R model, a car that's significant for, you know, more reasons than could ever really be summarized in, in any sort of short blurb. Uh, and then, you know, you've got a 65 Street GT350 that's a Paxton prototype car and a very original car. The only car believed to have ever been delivered in 1965 to a retail customer of a Paxton Supercharger. You know, you've got the very first production 66 Shelby by serial number. You've got one of the 11 Paxton Supercharged cars in 66 finished in candy apple red. You know, really the probably of all the 66 Shelby's, the the high watermark of any specification of 66 Shelby, a convertible. They only built four factory convertibles. One of them is in the sale, and this car is, is the only one believed to retain its original engine in the world. And then you've got serial number two, 67 GT350. You've got a 68 GT500KR. That's an extremely early car. You know, even even the 1970 GT350 that's in the sale, even though when it's compared to a lot of the other items in the sale, it, it, might, it might be somewhat easy to miss, but that's the very last GT350 constructed by Shelby Automotive in 1970 by serial number. And then even when you get to the very latest Shelby Mustang in the sale, uh, it's a 2015 uh, R model, serial number 37, so the very last one constructed in 2015. They made those 37 to mimic the number of 65 GT350Rs in 1965. Um, and those cars were really only available to the Ford family, engineers, designers at Ford Motor Company, Ford had to approach you as somebody who was who was going to be able to buy one of those cars. And John was one of the very, very, very few private owners who was given the opportunity to purchase one of those cars. Most people think that production started in 2016. Um, and then, of course, as far as like Shelby product goes, you know, the, the car that was left out there is, is just a lovely 64 uh, Shelby Cobra private comp- privateer competition car. So a car that was delivered as a street car. Um, but immediately converted to competition spec and raced with extreme success, highly documented car on the West Coast. Um, so it's just it's a really incredible kind of mix of, uh, of Shelby product and, and really every single one of those cars. There's really not a single car in the collection that doesn't really stand on its own two feet. And like I said, any one of those cars could really be the highlight of somebody's Shelby-related car collection. Well, thanks, Vern, for stopping by and sharing some of that vast Shelby knowledge, and we look forward to connecting again soon. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Matt, and I look forward to next time we get to talk. Don't adjust that dial. On the Move, we'll be right back. Our program is proudly presented by Meekum Auctions, the world's largest collector car auctions. Now back to Matt and John. Now, John, earlier in the program, we were talking about trends that we're seeing in the collector car marketplace. And one of the ones that uh, continues to be red hot with enthusiasts is this idea of resto mods. From your perspective, are we going to see more of this in the year to come? Well, that's, Matt, that's probably the biggest topic in the collector car world is where we at today with resto mods and what does the future lie? Let's briefly sort of define for our listeners what's considered a resto mod. No real hard 
uh, and past rule. But generally speaking, we're talking about a vintage vehicle, a, a post-World War II vehicle, not a street rod, uh, but a post-World War II vehicle that has that retains uh, the charm and the appearance of a vintage car. And this could be vehicles all the way up through the 1970s, but yet bringing it to a very high level of modern mechanical upgrades, including luxury and convenience items as well. Typically, we see upgraded suspension. Sometimes, in fact, the entire uh, uh, chassis frame system has been upgraded from the aftermarket to accommodate better rear ends and uh, uh, suspension, brakes, roll bars, etc. Ride and handling char characteristics much improved. But really, the heart of it is the power plants, the modern era, fuel-injected, supercharged, turbocharged in a lot of cases, computer-controlled engines, transmissions that are now able to be integrated in these vintage cars fairly easily. The aftermarket and OEMs both have come on board with a lot of plug-and-play componentry to be able to allow these vintage cars to be brought up to modern standards, blending the two worlds. So that's loosely and roughly what defines the RestoMod. And what we're seeing in the collector car world today is a higher percentage, more and more all the time, of vintage cars are being upgraded to uh, this. The demographics of the buyers, slightly younger than maybe a traditional buyer that might have a tendency to lean more towards uh, more of a traditional, original vehicle. And I guess my final comment, at least for now, in regards to these is what we're not seeing is is the investment grade, very nice, original uh, performance cars, uh, Corvettes, trucks that are in good original condition being modified to the rest of mod status. What we are seeing is, is those vehicles that have been kind of left for dead, and so it's bringing them back to life. And a lot of these vehicles uh, use a SS Chevelle as an example. Uh, didn't begin life as an SS. It could have been a you know a little 307, 70 Chevelle. Now all of a sudden it's a full-blown resto mod treatment with SS badging, and uh, so the, the the real enthusiast says, "Gee, did they start with a real super sport and cut it up and modify it to uh, the modern resto mod standard?" Generally speaking, no, that's not what they're doing. Now anything can really be turned into a resto mod, but what are some of the ones that you've seen that command the most attention? You know, the most uh, desirable and the most valuable of all of the rest of my platforms, of which there are many, uh, seem to be the Generation 1 and 2 Corvettes. And that's where those are the ones that get a lot of the attention. They get my attention when I see them uh, crossing the auction block at at Mecham. And it's just, it's really a lot of fun to look at. They're all different. Everybody builds it to different standards. Uh, but boy, they're sure doing a great job of integrating contemporary Corvette mechanicals into the great vintage bodies, once again, blending uh, the old and the new into what are unfortunately very expensive packages. A typical, even modest resto mod build is going to be a six-figure car, and the real the real superstars, the heavy hitters, can go in multiples of that amount. Not an inexpensive way to get into it, but you know what? More and more people are buying them, and they're not just letting these cars sit around. You see them out on the roads, they take them out, and they enjoy them. Boy, they get a bunch of attention. Now, John, if you were going to build one, what type of car would you start with? 
you know, I, I think every car enthusiast uh, thinks in the back of their mind that they would like to build a restaurant someday. And I think if I if I were going to build one, and who knows, never say never, uh, first-generation Firebird, 67, 8, maybe a 69 Firebird, uh, a lot of the Camaro componentry will fit onto that, a lot of the contemporary components as well. So it wouldn't be as difficult as uh, taking something that's too far off the beaten path, but something a little bit different, and uh, we get about 500 horsepower and modern brakes and good suspension and air conditioning and live happily ever after with that one. So, Matt, what about you? When you kind of think about uh, collector cars, trends in general, are you noticing anything from your perspective that seems to kind of get your attention and stand out a bit? One segment that I pay close attention to are the factory-offered high-performance and special edition trucks, and we have really seen some great ones over the years. One of my favorites is Dodge's Dakota Convertible, offered in 89 and 90. A little bit under 3,500 were built, but what a really neat truck and the first modern convertible pickup truck to be offered in recent decades. A little surprise, it comes from Dodge, a company long known for pushing the envelope and delivering exciting cars and trucks to customers. Before the Dakota convertible, they had offered pickup trucks like the Warlock and Little Red Wagon. So a little surprise that they would be the first ones to offer a convertible truck. Here you have the factory hardtop was cut off and replaced by a uh, vinyl top that could be manually dropped. And uh, the neat thing about the vehicle was that it didn't take away the top conversion uh, didn't take away any of the truck's rugged capability. So you really gave the customers the best of both worlds where they still had all that off-road capability and then they also had the bed space a little bit was taken up with the top but not too much. All that could still be retained for a a driving experience that you really couldn't get anywhere else on the marketplace at the time. Now along the lines of convertible pickup trucks Chevy also has offered one of uh, another one of my favorites the mid-2000s SSR. What a radical truck. Much more emphasis on performance. Uh, In the later years of production, you could get the Corvette's 390 horsepower V8 under the hood, but just wild styling, fun colors, bright imagery, and built during a time where you really saw that resurgence of retro styling coming back in other cars like the PT Cruiser and the Pontiac GTO, the Ford Thunderbird. And, And I love these trucks and enthusiasts do too. I mean, even today, they still turn heads and command attention. And then certainly Ford has built their fair share of hot haulers with everything from the Lightning to the modern day Raptor. And then along the way, they've built trucks that have a much more serious emphasis on style. Nowhere do you see that more clearly than in trucks like their early 2000s, Harley Davidson edition F-150s. You have uh, vehicles that have a serious emphasis on style and combining uh, a lot of uh, design influences from the world of motorcycles and from a, a long story brand like Harley Davidson. So to that end, I mean, you've got that sinister look with a lowered suspension, big chrome wheels and badges, performance exhaust, black paint, orange highlights, just a bad to the bone truck that, you know, turns heads and will continue to gain in popularity with enthusiasts, even for those that aren't into motorcycles. Hey, Matt, good stuff. You know, I'm with you all the way. Trucks are going to play an important part in the future, and I'm glad we had a chance to uh, highlight some more contemporary trucks instead of trucks that are 40, 50 years old. Now, John, what about you? When it comes to trucks, what kind are you into? You know, never never been a truck guy, but like a lot of car enthusiasts, that's changing. Uh, we were talking earlier in the segment about popular resto mods, and that, that flows over into trucks as well. The hot segment there 
of course, uh, the Chevy uh, C10, especially the 67 uh, through 1972 trucks known as the Glamour era. Those more and more and more, more of those. We see those stock restored uh, and also resto modded. And I have to say, they're 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 starting to get on my radar screen. Never really thought it would happen, but. You know, certainly, I think trucks are here to stay, and it's interesting that from your perspective, what got on your radar screen are a little bit more of the contemporary trucks. And, of course, we're seeing that more and more and more all the time. The interest in trucks and four-wheel drives and SUVs uh, continue just to gain in popularity, uh, whether they be old or whether they be new. They're, they're hot sellers. I think that's a trend that's going to continue in the future. Well, as always, John, good catching up, good talking cars and trucks, and I look forward to doing it again real soon. Hey, me too, man. Stay safe. You've been listening to On The Move, proudly presented by Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auctions. For more information, including past shows, visit Mecham.com. Be sure to sign up to become a Mecham InfoNet member, absolutely free. Join us again next time for more talk and discussion about the vehicles we love. We'll see you down the road.